Good afternoon. I'm T. Hetzel. You're listening to Living Writers on WCBN. And today I'm so excited to have in the studio um, Simon Armitage. Simon, welcome to Living Writers. Hi. And, and Ann Arbor. Yeah, and the Smiths. <laughs> and the Smiths. Were you expecting me to jump up on the table and fling some gladiolis around there? Exactly. Produce them from my back pocket. <laughs> yeah, and become shirtless. And yeah, yeah. and also with the um, using the mic line. Yeah, really. exactly. 25 years ago, maybe. <laughs> Well, anyway, we'll get we'll get to your music. You you've got a musical career. There could be a I don't know about a career, <laughs> some interest. <laughs> you've got a musical interest. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, Simon is uh, is in town here. He's going to be actually reading. If you're listening now, um, we're going. It's going to be a, 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 a strange living writers in a way because we have Simon for the first half hour, and then we're going to head over to uh, Rackham, uh, the amphitheater, where Simon will read at five o'clock. Uh, will you be reading from your your latest book? Uh, I will. That's yeah. Out in the states. Simon? Yeah, some of that and uh, some some other things as well. Some yeah. new work. Yeah. And, oh, great. Yeah. Okay. Maybe a song or two. Uh, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But Simon's uh, Simon's book has just come out in the states with Knopf. It's Tyrannosaurus Rex versus the Corduroy Kid. Snappy title. That's <laughs> great. I wore my cords in, <laughs> in honor, <laughs> as sort of a homage <laughs> title. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and so, but it was out. I noticed in in Britain in two thousand six. So yeah. we're a bit behind. Yeah, there's a, there's always um, a bit of a sort of lag time, um, you know, between these things. The, the, the conversation, the poetic conversation between uh, the states and uh, and the UK is always a, a little bit behind in either direction. But that's just a publishing thing, really. You know, um, we we have to wait six months to see your film, so <laughs> you can wait three years to to read my poems. <laughs> Yeah, it seems like an even trick. No, it doesn't. No. Um, and before I forget, thanks to Alex Sergey for, for engineering for us today. And thanks to those listening here, maybe even in England. I think some of the family in England is, is to my family, Simon's family. I don't know if they know to, to tune in. But um, anyway, and so if you if you can't make it over to Rackham at five o'clock to hear Simon, then we'll have the second half hour will be Gary Snyder. And, um, and this is a conversation from last spring but hasn't been aired yet so um, some exciting hour of poetry <laughs> that Simon kicks off and to, to actually uh, just to introduce you Simon a bit I'm going to read the bio from the back of your book Simon Armitage is the author of 11 previous books of poetry including Zoom a poetry society book choice he is also the author of two novels the best-selling memoir All Points North and most recently, The Odyssey, a dramatic retelling of Homer's epic. He has received numerous awards for his poetry, including the Sunday Times Young Writer of the Year, a Forward Poetry Prize, and a Lannan Literary Award. In 2007, he published his highly acclaimed translation of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. He lives in West Yorkshire and is a senior lecturer at Manchester Metropolitan University. That's me. That's you. <laughs> Exactly, and I'm sure there's even many more. I was saying that you're a Renaissance man. You do, and and I just heard you also had a screenplay that did well at Sundance recently. Yeah, and, yeah. And then you've written poems that have been. Um, you, you have a political interest as well, because I, I saw on your website um, simonarmitage.com. 
com that um, a, a poem of yours was uh, for uh, HIV for for the AIDS awareness. That, uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I've always thought with uh, with poetry that its its power and its range can extend further than just the printed page. You know, I, I've always thought that it has more. Uh, variety and, and, and more option and um, so I've, I've tried to put um, poetry to, to good work outside um, just books so uh, you know in the theatre um, I do a lot of writing for TV but it's nearly always verse and poetry um, the thing that you were mentioning about HIV I, I wrote a, um, a cinema advertisement Again. Uh, that's right yeah uh, for a campaign for UNICEF uh, which is about um, introducing Producing a, a, a drug uh, at the time of birth that stops uh, HIV being transmitted from uh, mother to, to child, and Gwyneth Paltrow uh, read that for us in the uh, in the clip. I think that's still online, actually. And, and I've done I've done other things like that as well. Yeah. And you also have a band, the Scaremongers. Yeah, that's right. We're we're about eighteen months old. We're we're we're, we're coming quite late at it. Um, it's it's me and a mate really. Uh, we we tried to get all this stuff together many many years ago, and basically didn't have any equipment or, or talent uh, or or, or design. <laughs> quite probably um, but we, we, we've given it another go recently and uh, we're, we're just having great fun I'm, there's seven of us now it's like every time I turn around there's another three or four have joined in uh, but I um, I write the lyrics and I sing so it's great it's, it's, it's really exciting we've been doing a few gigs this summer and uh, we finished uh, recording an album now we just got to mix that down. oh that's, uh, that's exciting so maybe you can come back when you have the album out on tour can- yeah <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Detroit or Ann Arbor, it's got to be in your 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 hot spots yeah. to, to revisit. Yeah. Uh, well, um, so so then also on your website you have um, uh, you're having a conversation with someone that maybe from the BBC about the Smiths. So music seems to be something you're from the the Manchester area from. Uh, so, so this is not uh, surprising that you're also um, musically inclined, right? You've always been influenced. You've, you've deconstructed this charming man yeah, that's <laughs> for right. BBC. Yeah, yeah, it is still on the website. I was talking to uh, Paul Morley. He's a, a music writer in the UK, and uh, we were actually there in a, that's in a, a great bar. Name, by yeah, <laughs> with, uh, with with the drummer from the Smiths talking about the uh, talking about the lyrics. Um, yeah, I mean, I I, I wrote um, um, a memoir uh, which was published last year in Britain called Gig, The Life and Times of a Rockstar Fantasist. And uh, in that, I talk about how music's been just as important to me as writing. I've only been a writer, really, for the second half of my life, but music's been around from from day one. And uh, really, it was about kind of 1978, 1979, when we sort of re-zeroed the musical clock in in, in our house. You know, it was uh, the first Talking Heads album and Undertones and Joy Division. And um, I I started all over again then really and I've never really stopped listening to that kind of music and so is that what the scaremongers are well we're going to hear a little hopefully we'll hear a little clip oh, oh, at the know. break yeah <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> if you can get our technology to yeah. <laughs> fully fire it up um, and so and you're also a Manchester United fan I am yeah I've uh, actually the, you know as, as well as the um, you know missing my family and everything when I'm when I'm away the, the things that I really miss are music because uh, it's just it's just difficult to even with iPods and everything I, I don't really like listening to music on headphones uh, so I really miss 
this, just having music on in the background. And I, I realised last night that I was sort of craving a bit of uh, football or soccer, as you, as you have it. Um, so, <laughs> hey, I call it football. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I was, uh, I was, I was, I was watching a, a football game on the internet last night, like a sort of sad man in his hotel room. <laughs> you know those images that sort of move on after every ten seconds. <laughs> I don't. Th- I actually. I applaud you. I think that Manchester United needs your support now more than ever before, since they're low on the table for the Premier. I think they. I think they need my support too. I, I, they. They probably don't realize it. <laughs> well, season ticket holder. So you're there. Yeah. You were there as, yeah. a, as a present. The yeah. lads know it. Yeah. Have you I, ever gone and like re- written a poem for Man United? <laughs> no, I keep those things very separate. Actually, yeah. When when I I, I like being part of the uh, of the mob. At, uh, at, at, at the ground I like I love that moment where you're walking towards the stadium and um, you sort of have to park the car about 10 miles away and then start walking in and then suddenly there's a couple of you and then the next time there's a hundred and then suddenly you, you'll be in this throng of uh, well you know 80,000 people and um, there's, there's just something um, it's almost sort of biblical that um, I also like going to the games on my own I like I like being an individual in in this huge number of people I can't quite explain it to to, 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 to myself or others and I, I like the I like the the theater of, uh, of football as well you know you know the characters uh, but you don't know the outcome and uh, you also know uh, unlike a lot of bad plays how long it's going to last <laughs> so, <laughs> That's true. Yeah. <laughs> Except for the old extra time thing sometimes. But yeah. Not. <laughs> oh, so Manchester United. Well, I'm glad we had a few words about that. And you've and you've chosen a little bit. Um, we were talking a little earlier about how you and your family have chosen to to remain in that region. Because mm. um, can you tell us where where you were born? Uh, it was. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, on the map, if you were to look on the map, uh, where we live is directly between uh, Leeds and Manchester. It's sort of equidistant between those two big cities. Uh, but we're actually way up in the in the Pennine Hills. I was born in a, a, a small village called Marsden, um, which is, is an old sort of mill village uh, with weavers' cottages and, uh, and mills that used to do everything from sort of shearing the sheep right through to, to putting the buttons on the suits. Um, but I guess it's a sort of commuter village now but um, it's it's a beautiful place um, in the in the summer you can get up onto the moors and there's really nowhere like it in the world I don't think but it it can be quite bleak in the winter but yeah we, we, we've chosen to stay there I mean I am a northerner um, you know with, with, without choice or apology really it's um, it's part of I me mean, it's a big part of what I write about and I've just realized over the years um, that I've become very comfortable there um, plus, it's not. I don't think it's sort of like the same in the states. Saying that you know, maybe if you're from the south, you know, you're, you're very much not from New York, for example. But um, you know, in in the UK, I mean, even being in Leeds or Manchester, you can be in London in a couple of hours. You can be in Edinburgh in a couple of hours. So, in fact, it's one of the reasons why they say that there's there's no good uh, sort of British road movies because because <laughs> you can be in Cardiff in two hours. So. <laughs> right over in Wales. Yeah, right totally. in another so, country. Yeah, it's just it's just. <laughs> not enough to go at <laughs> that would be actually a great challenge maybe that might be one of your next projects though yeah maybe <laughs> something that can't be done the yeah. british road movie <laughs> um and so I, I also noticed on your website simon that you have um as a quote from the long lifeless mud of the river Colne on there yeah. why why do you have that as sort of also rooting or 
Well, I suppose um, it's a it's a statement of identity and upbringing and and background, and there's maybe a, a slight sort of political tang to to that. Uh, comment that you know, I, I I come from you know an area that's um, not metropolitan. Um, I don't come from any kind of. I'm not from a family with any sort of literary pedigree or anything like that. So I I, I, I suppose it's it, there's an element of sarcasm there that um, you know I, I've managed to get on with my writing despite <laughs> <laughs> dot dot dot. Again, there is an ellipsis there. Is there? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't actually run my website. It's a mate who does it for me. In fact, it's the same guy that I'm in the band with. So. I'm not always sure what he's putting up there. So. Oh, so you must trust him, though. I trust him. I trust him with my, uh, well, maybe not my life. <laughs> <laughs> or at least your your image. Yeah, <laughs> with, with my yeah, <laughs> with my technology. That's what I trust him with. Exactly. Um, so you said that you only started writing in in the the second half of your yeah. life. That's, and yet. You know, you've you've you're so prolific, and you have so many books, and you've you've won so many awards. Um, so, <laughs> so when when did you decide? Because you were you, were you one day you were a probation officer, and you said, you know, well, I've got this geography under my belt, but yeah. what? What next? What? Where's the meaning? Or what? How did you come to writing? I think I think in the film version, that that's what that, that that's what will happen. You know, I'll be a probation officer one day, and the next day I'll, I'll wake up a poet. But um, in actual truth, uh, you know, these things were running in in parallel. I think what happened was that from about the age of fourteen, I was a reader, um, a reader of poems, not a reader of much else. But um, I started reading Ted Hughes at school. You know, the former British poet laureate, and. Um, it was really a kind of light bulb moment for me. The, the world suddenly seemed a really fascinating place. And, and you I, said at 14? Yeah, Simon. well, yeah, that's that's the age that you'd have to start studying uh, literature for your, uh, what used to be called your O-level exam, to then go on to do A-levels, to then go on to, to get into university. Um, but... Um, but it was a light bulb moment. Yeah, it yeah. just, I, I, I was a very disinterested and uninteresting student up to then um, but then suddenly you know the teacher brought these things into class and they were compact pieces of language just little black marks on a white page but they seemed to be able to produce sort of magic or, or miracles and I you know I've, ne- I've never forgotten the power of language since then and since then I've always been a reader of poem poems I, I didn't study English at uh, university I, I took a geography degree and then I did a psychology MA uh, but I was reading all the time and it was really only later you know when I was uh, 21, 22 that um, I started actually dabbling uh, in the dark art of poetry uh, and then uh, you know a year or so later when I started sending things out and and that was and and what do you what was that light bulb moment when you said you started dabbling is it because it doesn't seem to me like you say that lightly but you don't seem like a dabbler to me well, I'm not a dabbler anymore because I'm 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 now an obsessive, and um, but in everything it would seem. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think the thing with, with well, I do all these things that you you talked about, but it all comes back to poetry. I mean, even even the the lyric writing uh, to some 
extent comes back to, to poetry. So, um, uh, you know, even, even though I, I seem to be a sort of many tentacled octopus, um, you know, but poetry is is at the centre of of all that. And um, I, I it, it was really when I went back home after university, back back to the north, and I wanted to carry on reading poems, but the, I didn't know who else was doing that around where I lived. And I started going to some writing workshops at the local university. It was more like a night school, really, but not with the idea of becoming a writer, just because I wanted pointing in the right direction of other things to read. And I wanted to share my um, enthusiasm for reading poetry with other people. And, and who, who besides Ted Hughes at that time then? Because yeah. who were you? Well, I was reading uh, Tom Gunn, who eventually uh, came to live in San Francisco, a, a British poet originally. Uh, I was reading a lot of Paul Muldoon, again, and a, well, a Brit- Irish poet uh, who now lives in America. But a big turning point for me was um, uh, I, I remember getting in the local bookshop uh, a copy of a, a, a Penguin anthology of American verse edited by uh, somebody called Jeffrey Moore, who uh, you know I know nothing about. Big, thick, uh, sort of encyclopedia-type book. Went right back to Anne Bradstreet and Emily Dickinson and up through Whitman and then into those American voices of the 50s and the 60s. Um, so as well as all the confessional stuff like Lowell and Bishop and um, Plath and Sexton, I was also reading people like uh, um, Rex Roth and um, I was reading Shapiro and Weldon Keys and Randall Jarrell and, and people like that. And I, I just found in all those poets um, a living voice, you know, a speaking voice uh, that I wasn't hearing in some contemporary British poets at the time. And that's always been my thing. I've, I've, I'm, I'm really only interested in poetry that sounds like a voice um, on the page. Not necessarily a monologue, but the voice of a living person speaking to me, a character of some type. I'm, I'm, I'm not interested in poetry that, that looks like writing. Or I, I, and the poetry that I really dislike is poetry that, that looks like thinking. Mm, yeah. I, I can see that. That yeah. Well, but I mean that that that, that 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 voice thing can encompass anything. You know, it can compass. It can encompass. Uh, I mean, Ashbury to me is a speaking voice. Yes. Uh, it's 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 a it's 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 a voice that talks to me off the page. In pieces, sometimes. Yeah, yeah. in pieces, in fragments. Yeah. Yeah. yeah not, and not he's and he's also blurbed the. Or there's a quote from him on the back of your book. Yeah. And James Tate. Yeah. Tate Tate uh, is a is a is a great hero of mine. Um, Me too. There's a particular book um, that I would recommend to anybody called um, "Return to the City of the White Donkey," which I just absolutely love. And I I met. Um, James in Jerusalem uh, 20 years ago, um, just a complete coincidence, and uh, sort of been in touch since then. But um, his his um, his poetic is something that's uh, interested me, and uh, and Charles Simic as well is mm. another writer who I've followed. Mm. What and and James Tate? You've known him for twenty years, then. Well, it must be getting on for twenty years now. Um, yes. And I, I, yeah, I've, I've been uh, been over a few times to to Amherst to to read from him uh, for him and to do various conferences, and we've corresponded uh, a little bit. It's kind of a lopsided relationship, you know, because I am in awe of what what uh, what he does. But um, yeah, certain poems of his and that particular book are. Uh, big things for me. Uh, well, will you read us a poem, Simon? Would you yeah, mind? I will. That would be great. This is a very un-James Tate poem, <laughs> I know that we've said that. Uh, it's called The Clown Punk, 
and um, it's about a guy that I still see knocking around uh, Huddersfield, which is uh, the nearest town to me, who's uh, just completely covered in ink. The Clown Punk. Driving home through the shonky side of town, three times out of ten you'll see the town clown, like a basket of washing that got up and walked, towing a dog on a rope. But don't laugh. Every pixel of that man's skin is shot through with indelible ink. As he steps out at the traffic lights, think what he'll look like in 30 years' time. The deflated face and shrunken scalp still daubed with the sad tattoos of high punk. You kids in the back seat who wince and scream when he slathers his daft mush on the windscreen... Remember the clown punk with his dyed brain and picture windscreen wipers and let it rain. It was a sonnet. (laughs) That's what happened to punk rock in our house. It became formal poetry. (laughs) That's a a renegade move. That's great. I can see you're going to make this road trip film. I just know it's going to happen. so so Simon this is so this is very rooted in in place again yeah. like what we started talking about at the top of the the program um, and you also have another poem in there where it seems like it's an ode to the ladies of the coffee shop where you yeah. might have written when you were that young yeah that's young right man yeah yeah I mean um, is there a pressure to write from from this place no, I don't think there's any pressure at all. I mean, I've always been somebody who's just written poems out of what stands right in front of me. And, you know, because these things are in front of me most of the time, that's what I do. I've got a very early poem called It Ain't What You Do, It's What It Does To You, which is it's a sort of manifesto poem, really, that um, states in very kind of clear terms that you don't have to have had um, exotic or sophisticated life experiences to write or to be entitled to write poems you you can you can find um miracle and extraordinary happenings in the everyday in the commonplace and you know that's that's i i guess there's a you know a, a political aspect to that and that coffee shop that you're talking about is is a, a shop that's local to my town and um they they used to let us sit in there and write our poems without moving us on and that was about as bohemian as we could get in that town <laughs> <laughs> it does sound great you make this great move in it where suddenly they become their workers that are kind to you and then they're like oh but what is underneath like yeah. wondering like are you a calendar girl? And then yeah. July is, you know, mopping something out with yeah. cloth. Or... Yeah, and, and they're curious about me as well, you know, sitting there uh, so many years later, um, uh, suspicious of why I've gone back in there. Oh, you mean you went? You actually went back in to, to, to finish the poem? Well, I, so, I, 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 idea? I still go in. It's, uh, it's, still, <laughs> it's still an interesting... Um, He's still an interesting cafe. In fact, the local paper um, got hold of the fact that I'd written uh, this poem. But it's called the Merry England. It's like a you know ye oldie worldy coffee shoppy, <laughs> and uh, they said to me, "What is that? What is the chance of you going in there?" And uh, we'll we'll surround you with the women who work there and, and, and taking your picture. What's the chance of that? And I said, absolutely no chance whatsoever. <laughs> Shy of the photo op. 
Yeah. Oh well, um, and and you're also. I feel like there's so much to try and squeeze into this half hour, Simon. That we're just skirting along the surface of that river, Colne, right? Um, so you're translating as well. Um, was that just a natural progression of your the poetic? Because you said every tentacle comes back to the po- so Could you yeah. talk about the translation that well, you've done? Uh, you're, pro- you're probably referring to uh, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Um, there's all kinds of reasons for wanting to do that. It's, it's set in a part of the world not far from where I live. Um, it's become the plaything of academics and, you know, who make um, very necessary literal restorations of the original poem, but they're not interested in poetry necessarily, where, whereas I am. And I also think that there comes a time in, in your... Well, there has come a time in my writing life where I've been writing shortish lyric poems for, um, you know, 15 years plus. And you start wanting your voice to go off in a different direction. And I think one of the ways of doing that is to blend it with another voice, a voice from the past, you know, one of of your ancestors, in in this case, uh, you know, somebody from about 1400. And and, and what you achieve there is kind of hybrid voice that, that then gives you possibilities for your own work. And, and it's also, it seems like a, you've chosen something that's a, a myth, a, a heroic figure for Britain. And in some cases, it seems like maybe that's it's a time to look for more heroes. But that sounds cheesy. I don't mean it like it sounds. But the, the interesting thing about Gawain um, is that the, what he does and the quest he goes on uh, and the challenge he sets himself he does for himself he, d- he does to prove something to himself as a person he doesn't do it for the glory he doesn't do it for the girl and he doesn't do it for the treasure uh, it, it's about his own self-esteem and I think that's um, a sort of valid journey for people to be making in life and um, I, I, I even though he's kind of foolish and naive at moments in the poem I admire his um, that you know the way he's trying to be honourable to his ambitions for, for, for no purpose other than his his own self sense of worth. Is that somehow you how you might also be? Are you drawn to that story because that's maybe how choosing a life as a poet in some ways in this time it might be for you as well? Yeah, I think I think so. I, I think I think uh, Gawain's journey um, can be interpreted. Uh, as as the journey of a of a writer, and um, you know the, the 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 obstacles that he overcomes and the pitfalls that he you know slides into um, might be worth bearing in mind for any poet setting off on that trek uh, across the great landscape of verse. <laughs> Have you said that before, Simon? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> did I? Did it trip? Did it trip off the tongue a little it, too fluently? It, so. <laughs> <laughs> Quick, write it down so I can use it again. Okay, well we can we can play it back later. Okay. We can we can sort that out. I love how. Um, but things that have been written about you, it said his muscular. De- oh, about this actual translation, um, Sarah Gawain, his muscular deployment of alliterative rhythms and appealing contemporary language, including British slang breathes fresh life into a classic. You know, I thought that was kind of funny. Appealing contemporary language as opposed to unappealing, probably. Yeah, yes. <laughs> Good I'm word sure, sure there have been some of those reviews. <laughs> we tend not to put those on the back of the book, no. Exactly. Well, anyway, the muscular deployment is pretty good. Um, 
And so, yeah, I just think it's 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 been quite a challenge to try and figure out what to... We're going to go out on something, that other aspect of your life, the music part that you said has occupied you since birth. Yeah. Um, and so I don't know what Alex has queued up for us, but a little piece of your band, The Scaremongers. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then... Uh, Let's see. Are there any like what are current projects that you? Because we only have a couple minutes left yeah. that you're you're working on that we could look for. Or I've just finished um, writing on a film, uh, which I think will be called Climate of Change, uh, which has been budgeted for by Participant. Uh, they're an American film company, and it's it's a poem about uh, people setting up various environmental and conservation projects across the world, and that's going to be a cinema film. I'm not sure when it'll be out, but um, that. that that's that's been sort of occupying me for the last four or five months. Yeah. And and when you say you've been writing for yeah. it, is it all like the the lyrics, the po- poems, or and how is it yeah. different than writing what you want when you have some? It's almost being commissioned. Yeah, then. it has been commissioned. Yeah, it's what they call in my contract poetic linking material. Oh, um, of course, they call it something like that. Yeah, <laughs> it's 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 the voice of the film really. Um, and it's it's both sort of observation and, and, and commentary and stands slightly above and beyond what you're actually watching. Hmm. <laughs> so many aspects of the... It seems so like... So many you, aspects, so little time. Yes, I know. <laughs> you have to come back, Simon. Yeah. Or maybe we can use Skype and talk from across the pond, yeah. perhaps. Thank you so much for being on Living Writers today. And um, and like we like we were mentioning earlier, if you are listening, if you're driving, turn the car towards Rackham and go to the amphitheater because um, Simon Armitage will be reading um, new work. Um, he's got a great, uh, a huge black book there to bring on stage and also from his book that you can pick up, uh, Tyrannosaurus Rex versus the Corduroy Kid, um, out just this year with Knopf. Um, thanks for listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel again. Thanks to Simon Armitage. Um, thanks to Alex Sergey. We're going out with a song by the Scaremongers. <laughs> to fuck girl when you talk to the shop girl about white rolls royces and mobile disco vans and you open the page girl full of page boys and cakes girl and honeymoon retreats and wedding dress meringues so let the disco play tell Shannon's runaway then picture us two looking at Inside a wine glass photograph Someday soon we'll live as one But something tells you something's wrong I'm a nodding dog but God I'm not fooling anyone Good afternoon, you're listening to The Living Writer Show My name is T. Hetzel and today I'm thrilled to have in the studio, Gary Snyder. <laughs> Welcome, Gary. Hi, T. Glad to be here. Th- thanks for coming. Thanks for being here. Um, well, uh, 
you're here in town for the, this is a pre-taped interview, um, and, and Gary's here in town uh, to celebrate the, the, the life and work of Carl Port, uh, Shaman Drum's uh, in, intrepid owner and bookman extraordinaire. That's right, and an old friend. And an old friend. Uh, to me, and I've been to Shaman Drum Bookstore four or five times in the past mm. with various books of mine as they came out. Uh, for book signings, uh, but I met Carl even before he had the book. How, how did you meet him? Oh, Gary? up in Flint, Michigan. Oh, in uh, Flint. When he was living up there and teaching up there. And why were you there? I uh, I didn't the, see that in your biography that no, I was. There's reading. a lot of things that are in my biography. <laughs> I was thinking that, but there, it's chock full already. But, uh, but his his I was interested in his father's work as a collector of Plains Indian uh, artifacts. Uh, and uh, his father actually was away that week when I was there, those days. But I got to meet him and his brother uh, and uh, some other um, suspect characters from around Michigan. And we had a great time. And then, <laughs> Do you want to name those suspect characters? <laughs> it always sounds interesting. Yeah, David Robbins uh, and Russell Gregory. Not, not, not that you necessarily know who they are. But that's just, but some that's people, just me. Well, yeah. That, yeah, listeners, yeah. yeah, listeners yeah. will. Well, before we go any further, I wanted to do this very traditional thing of just reading a blurb off of your, one of your books sure. to locate people. Um, so so here I'm, I'm holding uh, Gary Snyder's uh, latest book of essays from no- North Point Press, um, Back on the Fire. Uh, let's see. And without further ado... Gary Snyder is the author of 16 collections of poetry and prose, winner of the Pulitzer Prize in 1975, and a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award in 1992 and 2005. He has been awarded the Bollinger Poetry Prize, the Robert Kirsch Lifetime Achievement Award, and the 2004 Japanese... Masoka Shiki International Haiku Grand Prize. He has lived in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada since 1970. Which sounds actually absolutely beautiful, um, the foothills. I, I was reading that uh, your house is named Kit Kadizzi. Am I pronouncing That's right, that? Kit Kadizzi. It's named after a little ground uh, plant that grows in the Sierra Nevada, quite, quite widely dispersed. And uh, it's one of the few places in the world it grows. So it's very particular to it. Just It's a, a very particular and, and yet ubiquitous little ground cover. What's it, what's it look like? Well, it, it's I got, love its, it's name. Got, it's got a highly, um, highly divided, uh, tiny, glabrous leaves and a, uh, a strong uh, chemical odor, which is to chase uh, insects away, and little uh, white flowers when it blooms. And it's a member of the rose family. Rosacea, yeah. Oh, how strange. And why did you pick that as the name of your home? Because it's around the place. Oh. <laughs> All right. Very also, I like the name. It's, a, the, uh, it's called Mountain Misery in English, uh, but the uh, Kit Kit Dizzy Wintu name for it. Is the what? Is Wintu. Is that is that a, a native it's population? One of, the native, uh, oh. one of the native populations in in California. That sounds so much better than <laughs> than anything with misery in it. <laughs> that seems... Oh, well, it's got other names. Bear clover. 
That's another one. Tar so, weed is another one. It's not many people who who have a, a home with this many aliases as you have. <laughs> oh, I'm sure if people will look at it, they'll see that they have lots of aliases on the popular names of the plants around their place. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have a corner on the market. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I, well, when I was reading through your biography, Gary... Um, which is probably a phrase that sends chills up and down your spine. Well, like, my biography oh, hasn't been written yet, so it's okay. Okay. Well, the chronology in the back yeah. of um, one of one of the, uh, the the Gary Snyder Reader oh, yeah, pose, poetry and translations. There, yeah. That chronology was very helpful yeah. and illuminating. Um, and so you so you were born in San Francisco and then right. moved to the Northwest. My parents moved to the Northwest. Yeah. And took you. <laughs> right. They didn't forget me. <laughs> and because I, I loved how you you sort of your whole life have have moved up and down. Well, I'm the a West, West Coast, Coast person. Yeah, there's nothing strange about that. There are a lot of West Coast people. You yes. Know? And on the West Coast, we move from Vancouver, British Columbia to Tijuana, Mexico. Ex- that, yeah. That's our country. Yeah. Yeah. Your path, the path up and down. Yeah, up and down. Uh, highway 99, that was the old highway. <laughs> I love 99, now although in Seattle, it's a bit dodgy right well, now. Well, now it's I-5. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I- but it was 99 when I was a young man. Mm. I-5, mm. I-5 came in about in the 60s. I, I, yeah. And I love in your poems, or, or actually, I think it was in an essay of yours, you just referred to it as the five, which is how people talk about it, you know, but it was just nice yeah, to see Yeah, or the that. 80 or the 297. Right. That's the way everybody talks about the right. freeways out west. Yeah, some, some people uh, listen to this program out in Seattle, so they're yeah. probably smiling right now. <laughs> well, hopefully. I don't know. Well, you know, Seattle has some of the worst gridlock of any city in the United States now. Mm. Yeah, it's really bad. It's because of... of uh, you know, trying to go through the middle of town on the freeway that just didn't space for it. Right, right. And so you take the alternative route and you go around the east side of Lake Washington. Hmm. But, 425. But that is still terribly crowded. You know, the northwest is going down the tubes, just like every place else. <laughs> okay. Don't say that, Gary. <laughs> if you say it, I don't. I've, I always think of you as someone who has this this great hope about you. <laughs> uh, Except for, you know, that you know what, that's probably untrue because you have to have an understanding of what is going to be lost to be such a, a conservationist. Exactly. Exactly. And and you and But I, you don't have to be a, an eccentric West Coast poet to realize <laughs> that the whole nation is suffering from gridlock mm. uh, and sprawl. Uh, and uh, not to mention all the other bad things that are going on right now. It's 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 a national concern, not just a few of us. Mm. Yes. No. Yeah. I be- I, yeah. I believe you. I actually lived in Seattle for for a decade. It was a so great town. It, it's yeah. When I was there, it was full of Swedes. <laughs> it still is Ballard. <laughs> Um, well, and so you you just said you called yourself, I believe, an eccentric. It doesn't take an eccentric West Coast poet. I was being poet. ironic. Okay. Right. I'm really very normal. Sure. <laughs> well, I hope not. Ah, <laughs> uh, that's how we poets keep you off balance. By you, you have to keep wondering. Exactly. Where are they? Where are they? Um, I I love the idea that you sort of. Um, it seems like you decided to at one point leave undergraduate, like lead free college and go um, uh, on a uh, joint, become a seaman and get on a ship and start seeing the world. Is- mm, that was that. The chronology is a little off there. Uh, oh, sorry. I did finish Reed. I got my okay. degree and uh, I went to work in the woods in, on an Indian reservation in Oregon. And then I went to graduate school at Indiana University for uh, uh, a semester in linguistics. Mm-hmm. 
uh, and then I quit to go out to Berkeley, and I got into graduate school there to study classical Chinese and Japanese uh, for three years. And is and is that when you you met met up with some, like the 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 beat community? Uh, toward the end of that, well, I got I met up with the the literary and the poetry and the, and the political community of the whole Bay Area from 1952 when I first went there on. Very, very strong cultural community, dominated by figures like Kenneth Rexroth and Robert Duncan. Mm. Uh, Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac were latecomers to the scene in 1955, uh, which already was wonderfully developed in lots of good poets and lots of good writing and lots of good musicians, too. So what is called beat is what they managed to create by being catalysts in an already existing situation. Yes. Yeah. Oh, thank, was, you, thank you for uh, pointing Well, you out. know, people don't understand that. I'm, I uh, taught a seminar on that very point a couple of times when I was teaching at UC Davis. Uh, oh, I wish I could have been in that. <laughs> yeah, I wish I could have, too. Uh, <laughs> but um, after that, I went to Japan in 1956. Uh, and then to get a break from uh, Zen monastic training life, I caught a ship, uh, because I had Siemens papers from when I was a teenager, I caught a ship out of uh, Yokohama, and uh, that's when I spent a year uh, sailing around the Pacific and, and, and the Indian Ocean on a tanker. So that was quite a bit later. So you were actually so working, literally working. You weren't as if you were kind of hitching a ride with them. Oh, you no, were I was working, I was and in it the was like room. a regular... Uh, oh. I was in the engine room, yeah. I was a, a wiper. A wiper? A wiper. <laughs> that sounds intriguing. So it's a name for a job of an all-purpose worker in the engine room. Oh, that's wonderful. That's okay. the official name for it. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. a little bit of everything. Maybe 100 years ago, they mostly wiped up oil. But we did a lot of other things now. <laughs> the more glamorous things. <laughs> Not necessarily more glamorous. A lot of plumbing. You know, working on big lines and big pipes and steam lines and saltwater lines and freshwater lines and hot water lines. And but that got you from place to place. Well, the ship is moving there. all the time that you're doing that, yes. Oh, right. And did you have... Um, did, did you have a, a chance to, um, once you disembarked, to sort of see the places and... Uh, well, you know, tankers, oil tankers, um, are not great in terms of seeing the world. Uh, they have very quick turnaround time in port. Mm. Uh, like when we were taking oil on, we went into Rastanura or Abadan, which are along the uh, southern side of the Gulf Coast, on the Iraq side of the Gulf Coast, the, Gulf, the Persian Gulf. And um, we would dock to a, a long wooden walkway, maybe a mile long, that came out from the shore. Uh, and so we could barely see land. Nobody got off the ship. And you could completely put on a whole new tanker load of oil in 48 hours. They'd fill up the uh, the tanks, and then off we would sail. We'd never go ashore. They didn't want any white seamen ashore looking for alcohol and women. I read not some. In, <laughs> not in, in your the, essay sounds not in like Saudi Arabia. People were being sort of sho- having shocking behavior. I think you might have written a letter to Philip well, Whalen. That's, that's and, true. You and know, in said, places like like Sicily, you can have shocking behavior. Right, right. But not in the in the Persian Gulf. No. <laughs> so, so was this a time when you were, so 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 you weren't sightseeing? Were you? Did you did you have a chance to write a lot when you were while a you were a wiper? I wrote a few poems. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I kept uh, extensive journals. 
Okay. Yeah. It seems like you're someone who who has always said yes to the experiences of life. That's what it, just from reading well, the you, chronology. You, well, you can't afford to say you won't take a job on the ship if they offer it to you when what you want to do is get on a ship. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> I wish that were still possible. I don't know if that's something No, that, it's not really um, possible anymore because the United States no longer has much of a merchant marine. Mm. Uh, it, it's... Um, the merchant ships of the world are uh, under other flags, like Liberian flags and uh, Greek flags and Indian flags. And so I'd have to become an expat to become sort of a seaman. Well, if you're, if you're an officer, if you've got officer ratings, mm-hmm. you can work on any of those ships. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's Generally on all those ships, you know, the officers are all either Americans or British or Czech or something like that. And the working guys are, you know, they're from the third world, 100%. You know, so that's the way it works out there. You know, you mentioned Merchant Marine yeah. uh, in passing. Have you ever been to the, the bar Specs across from City Lights Bookshop? Because I think he was a, a merchant. What did it used to be? I'm, I, this, I don't, it has like a mongoose and a cobra, and he, it's that must have been in an alleyway. I was there. Really? It, was, okay. it looks like it. It was probably a lesbian bar called Miss Smith's Tea House. <gasps> Maybe it was. Now yeah. it's a merchant marine bar. <laughs> oh, there isn't any merchant marine anymore. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, um, well, so, but it seems like you, you've, with, with life, it's as if when I was thinking about. And, and correct me if I'm I'm completely mistaken, of course. But with your work, with your writing, with mm. with your pursuit of like a spiritual spiritual um, component in your life, um, uh, and and your work in general, all of this is 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 connected. Without the way you write, the way you live, your spirituality, it seems like it's so interconnected that there are, there are no divisions between it. Do you think? And, and so you're, was that fair to say? I just try to live my life, that's all. <laughs> and I'm trying to make grand statements about it, apparently. Oh, oh dear. Um, <laughs> yeah. Do you ever, but by saying, by living so much of this life and having, accumulating these experiences and, and putting travel as, as, a, as a priority, it seems like in your travel life? Travel was a, a, never a priority for me, but it was uh, a means. A means. Uh, a means to get from uh, the West Coast to Japan. Or a means to earn some money, travel around the Pacific a little bit, and then uh, uh, end up on the West Coast again. Yeah, it's a means, you know. A means. I don't travel just for uh, idle purposes. Uh, and actually, I'm, I'm much more interested, and I've done uh, a lot of writing about the necessity to find a place and to settle into a place and be there. Let's let's come back to that, Gary. We're going to take a short break. Okay. And. Let's come back and talk about that. You're listening to Living Writers, Gary Snyder.
Welcome back. If you're just joining us, you're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. And today on Living Writers, Gary Snyder is in the house. Um, well, uh, well, Gary, so so here I was trying to talk about travel and, mm. and saying yes to the world. And, and you said instead that it's a, you're stressing the importance of place which is i guess going back to kit kadizzi can you t- talk about the importance of place finding your place well normal people come from somewhere uh worldwide yeah. and uh you know in terms of the overwhelming homo sapiens experience of the last 25 or 30,000 years just to take a, a short figure uh, people have intimately known a local landscape and that's what enabled uh, human beings to have so much diverse and effective agriculture uh, where uh, the species of the plants are adapted because of lots of experimentation to a number of different habitats and a lot of different climates Uh, and uh, human beings being very handy uh, kinds of critters have managed to find a way to do this everywhere from the Arctic to the rainforest jungle. Uh, so that's all part of knowing place and being in place. Uh, and this is something that has, has been lost in the last couple of centuries in some parts of the world. Uh, so that um, there are a lot of people now who don't know where they come from, mm-hmm. don't know who their, uh, where their grandparents are buried, uh, or their great or their great parents great grandparents might have been born and there's no family history left uh, this is particularly true of Australia and the United States mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I think that there's a definite connection between that alienation with our inability to take proper care of the land uh, and so uh, I like to say sometimes all of America is homeless uh, and one of the things we've got to do is is uh, decide to be born again mm. as uh, members of the North American continent. Uh, and, that sounds like uh, a great idea. Because yeah, people are so work, disconnected. properly taken care of it. Yes. Instead of just trying to make a buck off of it and then move on. Because mm. where are we going to move to, right? Yeah, not yeah. the moon. No. <laughs> and, and then, you know, there's a, uh, an optimistic turn in that is this interest in local food. Uh, and this growing interest in uh, paying attention to the locality and taking care of the little local creek and watershed and uh, learning the names of the local birds and being aware of when they come back in the middle of March, usually, and so forth. Especially for poets, wouldn't you say? I know you're no, saying this, it's for I'm all human beings. No, I'm about poets. Right, no, I do know that. I, I, do I, don't, know. I don't give a fig for poets. <laughs> You know, I don't write poetry for other poets. I write poetry for For human beings. Right, for people. Right. (laughs) No, I knew, I did understand that that was your, I, I, and I'm with you, Gary. I I understand. The back of your mind is still in the creative writing class, though. (laughs) Oh, no, let's hope not. (laughs) Oh, no. God, that, you know, I will think about that. I hope not. But, um, but I guess what, but I, but I am wondering if, I, I just think it is interesting, like to have a sense of connection to place, um, in order to even 
to, to get the writing done. Like, I know you're speaking as to human beings yeah, I'm and not in talking your work. About, I'm and, not talking about getting yeah. writing done. Yeah. I'm talking about living a sane human life. Mm. A, a real one where you're not in pieces yeah, and, in your and, own and self. And being able to communicate some useful information to your children mm. as you go along. Yeah. Mm. Now, having said that, you know, and having lived in cultures where people do come from places like in Japan. I lived in Japan for 10 years. Uh, that doesn't stop you from going on trips. But when you go on a trip, you know where you came from, and you know where you're going back to. That's the difference. Right, and you and you do carry it with you too. You you uh, have a well, sense of something uh, different. You, oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I was uh, uh, hiking up a trail in uh, Nepal about 25 years ago, uh, outside of Kathmandu, and um, uh, I came on a little yard. I mean, the, the villages and the town and the houses and the farms up there have no roads. They're all walking paths. So I walked right past a path and I saw that the, the way the guy was milking the cow. So I opened the gate, stepped over a fence and walked up to him to look at how he was doing it and sort of helped him move the cow around. And we didn't speak the same languages, but he looked at me and he knew right away, I knew cows. <laughs> that's because I that's because I grew up on a little dairy farm. Yes. And, and I did hand milking. And how and so how curious so you helped but you helped him cuz he was having a trouble with I, the cow. I don't remember exactly what it was the cow, the cow was kicking or something. And it's you know it's just behavior. But it, it helps to have an extra person there for a minute. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. wonderful. And Nepal, who would have ever, you know, thought, you know, walking oh, along Nepal in Nepal? Does, Nepal does a lot with uh, cows and yaks, too. They get yak oh, yeah. milk. Yaks are a member of the uh, cow family, and they give milk, and they make cheese out of yak milk. And I love the idea of yaks, even. Like, I've never seen one, but except, you know, on pictures. But, yeah, the they're, yak. They're nice little animals. They're very gentle. And uh, they're smaller than cows. Re- that's what they're not so huge. I thought they were big. Yeah. They're not big. Maybe there are some big ones, but the ones that I saw in Nepal were fairly small, huh. all different color coats, and uh, they load them up with loads and go places with them. But then, uh, and the yaks can graze on the very steep slopes, and then they also milk them, but they don't give them very much milk. Oh, yeah, better, better. And, cow and for everything that. is made either into yogurt or cheese. Do you know why? Mm-mm. No refrigerators. Huh. This is just, I'm learning everything today. <laughs> and I want to see more of the world. But I also want to have a, a place that I feel like you, you found in, at the, 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 the base of the Sierra well, I grew Nevadas. Up, I grew up on a farm. And so I, I got a sense of this is, you know, where you start. I love how you said that at 19, you you felt like you were a, a conservationist because that's when you wrote, wrote your first letter to, to Congress about, I think, a forest. Is it was it? A, a logging uh, proposal for the Olympic National Forest. Yeah. And uh, my uncle's, uh, my father's brothers were all loggers. So I knew, and, and actually I worked alongside of my father with uh, the two-man saw, and with, we did a certain amount of logging on our own land up there. So I knew what was involved in it. Uh, but also, I came to like uh, old forests. Uh, well, it's kind of a balance. I'm still doing that. Mm-hmm. Still taking care of the forest. Yes. You know, and still deciding sometimes what to cut down. 
uh, where I am now. On your own, on your land, yeah, surrounding Cape. Also involved in local community work with the Bureau of Land Management mm. and the Tahoe National Forest uh, in their uh, uh, land management decisions. Uh, you know, going in as a person with a certain amount of forestry knowledge and also a certain amount of timber industry knowledge. Yeah. You've got a lot of knowledge. <laughs> That's my brilliant statement for the for the program. Hey, you know, but, there's nothing wrong with knowing a lot. Oh, I, yes, and yeah, and this, not and also actually knowing it, not knowing where to find it. Because in our today's society, it seems like we rely less on memory. Well, you than know, knowing you, where you can go in for the United States, right? you could be a multi multi billionaire, and everybody thinks that's great. And if you have uh, uh, thousands and thousands of private property ranch land, they think, well, he deserves it. He, or he made that money. Right. And it's great to be rich. So, you know, you never get any uh, flack for being super wealthy. Mm. But you do get flack for, be, for knowing a lot. Oh, that's so elite. Oh, right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. I wish that they would give a knowledge of the same kind of territory to exist in as they give money. Yes. Wouldn't that be a different <laughs> world? Be that would be kind it? of nice. <laughs> I wanted to just ask you this 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 one um, question going back to um, a, a letter you wrote wrote to Philip Whalen in um, 1960? Yeah. Okay, I know. You're like, where is she dredging this up from? But I thought it was interesting just to talk about the the way of your working, your writing um, for a moment. Because um, you said in the letter that you're working on a long poem. That the conception of it was exciting, but it's too intellectual still. Um, and then you, you went on to say, I think that I work as a sort of um, in an, a sort of overall intellectual structure, and then there's a sort of forgetting it for a long time and then beginning to fairly spontaneously write into it again and i wondered is that something that it maybe you can't even answer this but is that a way of writing and being that you kind of feel like is something that you kept true actually to? i've, I've uh, in many cases i've continued to work that way uh and uh, actually is the way lots of people work uh including like in the agencies and in uh, science, uh, you're going to, you have a new project coming up. Maybe you by yourself or maybe with two or three people, you're going to be, you're going to be the project committee. Okay. What's the first thing they say you should do? They say, go over the literature, reread uh, uh, everything that has been written on this topic uh, and reconsider it and then go on to the next step. Uh, so sur the survey of the literature, uh, which could be in science or in the humanities or in history, is the first step. But I, I was thinking mm -hmm. even with this idea, because you said you were involved in a long poem. And uh, for some reason, I was mm -hmm. I was thinking it might have been what became your ambitious, like the, the mountains and rivers without mm -hmm. end. Is, is that That's what right. you think you were? I was speaking in terms of mountains and rivers when I wrote that to Philip. Okay. Yeah. Because I thought it was so interesting that uh, the six sections were published in 65, mm -hmm. and then in, and it wasn't until 96 when the mm -hmm. project kind of reached what you felt was its... Right. Well, what's that like to work in something for that long, intensely? Uh, uh, this you have to be organized. You have to have some file drawers. Uh, you have to be able to keep track of where the different papers from the different periods are. 
and you have to divide your projects up and give them names uh, and be able to shift working from one project to the other project and back. Uh, right, because other things, you had other things coming and out in essays. And, oh, yeah. uh, I, was, I, I published 14 books of poetry while I was working on that. Why do you feel like it's the, the most ambitious? Is it because it, it took the longest? It was something that you stayed with the longest? It was more, diff- it was or more the difficult. Con- or the concept? What was? Mountains and Rivers of the but, but what do you mean by that? Like, the- uh, like a complicated game as against a simple game. Uh, like many parts, uh, many connections, and uh, a certain amount of uh, information required that uh, uh, you, ha- you had to go look up to make sure you had it right. What do you mean? Which, what's well, hydro- hydrology, mm-hmm. uh, weather patterns, global weather patterns, uh, uh, the history of Chinese landscape painting. You know, there's just many elements involved in it. Uh, and... Uh, you know, I could have. At a certain point, you have to say, "This is enough. I've got to just write this thing." <laughs> but that's not just true in, in uh, creative writing. That's true in scholarly and intellectual, and not even intellectual. Now, Conkle sending out the signals, setting up outside. The one-two pitch, fastball, swing, and a miss. He struck him out. Jim Brower with his 200th career strikeout to end the top of the second inning. And Brower is now just the eighth pitcher in Michigan Wolverines baseball history to strike out 200 batters in his career. Howell doing everything he can here to keep the game alive for his team. Derek Feldkamp still working off the stretch. Yeah, so since he came on. Jeff Conkle flashes out the sign, setting up outside. 2-2, pitch, swing, and a miss. He struck him out, and the ball game is over. Derek Belkamp strikes out Jacob Howell on a 2-2 curveball. The Buckeyes are retired in the ninth. They leave two on. The final score here at Ray Fisher Stadium, the first ever night game played at the pitch. Michigan 11 at Ohio State 3. Hello and welcome to the Daily Sports Report for Wednesday, uh, October 1st, 1st of October already, uh, 2008. I am Andrew Side. Thank you for listening for, to WCBN uh, 88.3 FM in Ann Arbor. As uh, For today, it's the uh, start of baseball playoffs, which is why I thought I'd play a baseball intro. <laughs> but um, before we get to that, because that will probably take up most of our time, we'll start with a little Michigan news. So take it away, Christian. Thanks very much, Andrew. Uh, not a whole lot to report. Rather an easy day in terms of Michigan sports. Happening a little bit later on tonight, Michigan's uh, number one doubles team, consisting of Shisako Sugiyama and Tanya Ma- 